Now we're turning to, first of all, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, but with another two readings in Matthew chapter 3 and Luke chapter 3, as we consider this morning the servant's baptism, the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. First reading, chapter 1 of Mark, beginning at verse 9. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. Straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Matthew chapter 3, for Matthew's account of the same incident, beginning to read at verse 13. Of Matthew 3. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, for Luke's account of the baptism of the Lord Jesus. Luke 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also, being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. For the last time, the door of the carpenter's shop in Nazareth swings shut. And the carpenter makes his way toward the river Jordan, where the multitudes are beginning to gather. A gruff, rustic, unorthodox preacher is proclaiming and administrating a baptism of repentance for sins. His cry is, repent ye and be baptized for the remission of sins for the kingdom of God is at hand. He is a prophet like unto Elijah. He is as fearless as Elijah. And the humble carpenter of Nazareth pushes his way through the throng and joins the candidates for baptism. I'm sure you can imagine John the Baptist's shock when he sees the face of his next candidate for the baptism of repentance, the holy, sinless face of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say Mark does not record as Matthew that John protested and attempted to prevent the Lord Jesus Christ being baptized, saying, I have need to be baptized of you, and do you come to me? And Jesus humbly replies, according to Matthew, that it is appropriate, necessary for him to be baptized 
in order that, as one version puts it, permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. But Mark does not record these features. Mark records no objections to the baptism of the Lord Jesus by John the Baptist. And I believe that here is a significant feature because Mark, of course, as we found out in our introduction and last week to this study of the gospel, Mark is emphasizing the servanthood of our Lord Jesus Christ rather than the kingship and the royalty of Jesus. So there is no objection for the servant to be baptized. Now, our consideration, of course, in these studies is Mark's gospel. But if we were to look briefly just now, at Matthew's account in Matthew 3 and Luke's account in Luke 3, you'd find some profound thoughts and lessons in the differences, the distinctions in their accounts as compared to Mark's. Just look at two with me. First of all, in Luke chapter 3, we find that Luke records that Jesus was praying when the heavens opened and when the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. Now, we don't know what his prayer was. It's not recorded for us. And his prayer may have been, indeed, that he would receive the Spirit of God without measure. And whilst we don't know the exact details of his prayer, the answer to whatever the prayer was, was that the heavens were opened and the Spirit did descend and enable him for his messianic Ministry. So he got an answer, and that's what the answer was, which may give us a clue as to Jesus' prayer. But here's the significance of what Luke is emphasizing when he talks of the Lord Jesus praying at his baptism. For Luke often emphasizes, if you're familiar with his gospel, Jesus praying. And specifically, Jesus praying as a man, a human being, who is in absolute dependence upon God. We know that Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. Take Luke 11, for instance, verse 1. It came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And then he teaches them the disciples' prayer, our Father who art in heaven. And in verse 13, then the Lord Jesus, having taught them a little bit more about prayer, says, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children... How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Praying for the Holy Spirit is emphasized in Luke's gospel. And here we see him at his baptism. And Luke records, praying, the heavens opening, and the Spirit of God descending. There's a great lesson in Luke's gospel when we look at the prayer life of our Lord Jesus. Because it teaches, I believe, that our dependence on God is directly proportionate to the quality of our prayer life. I wonder how we measure up. But then secondly, if you look at Matthew's account of baptism of Jesus, Matthew tells us that when John saw Jesus coming, he looked at him and said, recorded in verse 14 of Matthew 3, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me. The Bible teacher and commentator G. Campbell Morgan says these words, it is of supreme importance that we understand that when John said that, he did not know who Jesus was. He did not know 
that he was the Messiah. Well, that might strike you as incorrect. But I ask you the question, how well did John the Baptist really know the Lord Jesus? Of course, they may have been companions in childhood. We have no record of that. They certainly were related as second cousins. Uh, John's mother Elizabeth seems to have been informed about who the Lord Jesus was. She refers to him in Luke's, Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, as my Lord. And we are left with conjecture, asking the question, uh, did Elizabeth convey to her son John the Baptist some of the knowledge that she had about uh, who Jesus was? Nazareth, where Jesus lived, and Hebron, where John the Baptist was brought up, was separated, but it is not impossible that they, they did not cross paths in their childhood, and certainly it is likely that they met up as a family as they went on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem at various festivals in the year. Yet the fact remains that on two occasions in John's Gospel, chapter 1, John the Baptist says distinctly that he did not know the Messiah until the Spirit of God descended and lit upon him. So from John's own mouth, we have the confession that he did not know that Jesus was the Messiah. Yet, according to Matthew chapter 3, when, when John looked into the eyes of this one who came to be baptized, he said, No, I'm not going to baptize you. I should be baptized by you, not me baptizing you. I believe that the only answer to that seeming dilemma is the fact that when John refused to baptize Jesus initially, that this was a revelation, a prophetic declaration given to John by God to show the sinlessness of Jesus as the Son of God. There's no other explanation. For on the one hand, John says, I didn't know who the Messiah was, and yet he refuses baptism to Jesus because he feels unworthy. Of course, John himself in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, that is John the Baptist, says, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. And John, we know, was given a sign to know who the Messiah was. In John 1.33 we read, he says, I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And let me say this is very important. This was not John the Baptist's opinion of Jesus. But it was a divine revelation and declaration that this is the sinless Son of God. Here's why it is important. Because the whole crowd would have assumed that Jesus was coming to be baptized with the baptism of repentance for the same reason that everybody else was coming. Because they were sinners in need of God's forgiveness. But by this divine declaration and revelation, it was clear that Jesus was different. Now this brings us to the salient issue, I believe, when we consider the baptism of Jesus. Whatever gospel record we read of Jesus' baptism, the big question the careful reader is left asking is, why was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, baptized? It has to be said that the baptism of Jesus does seem to cause problems for many. Someone has said, 
This could not have been the baptism of repentance, as Jesus had nothing to repent of. What do you think? How would you answer? Here's how Campbell Morgan answers that question, and I favor his explanation, though it seems a little shocking in the first instance. He says, he was baptized, that is Jesus, as a repenting soul. His also was a baptism of repentance. His also was a baptism of the confession of sins. In that hour, he repented. He confessed sins. But the repentance was not for himself. The sins were not his own. In that hour, he identified himself with the multitude who had been thronging out to the baptism identified himself with them in the consciousness of sin, in repentance for it, in the confession of it. In that hour of baptism, we see the most solemn and wonderful sight of the servant of God, who had come from the silence and seclusion of Nazareth, taking upon himself the burden of human sin, counting it as if it were his own sin, doing that to which an apostolic writer ultimately referred by declaring, he was made sin. This is perhaps why Martin Luther, the reformer, in his book Table Talk, said that our New Testament really begins here at the Jordan. Now let's see Mark's, in particular, fourfold emphasis concerning the baptism of the servant of Jehovah. How Mark gives it to us. First of all, the significance of the baptism of Jesus is explained in that it is the servant's identification with sinners. Why was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, baptized? It is the servant of Jehovah's identification with sinners. And we've touched on this a little bit. But let me expand. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 says that the Savior had to be made like unto his brethren in all things. Isaiah 53 verse 12 tells us that the Messiah had to be numbered with the transgressors. So as in his incarnation, so also Jesus in his baptism, mark this, was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, when Jesus came as a man, there was no difference that you could have seen between him and any other member in humanity. There was no beauty in him that, that we should desire him. He wasn't a foot taller than everybody else. There wasn't a halo around his head or an aura about him. He looked like any other man. He lived like any other man apart from sin. That is why he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And in the same sense, the reason why he is being baptized as any other sinner is that he is coming in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus was a very common name in uh, Palestine during the time of Jesus' nativity. It was like John or James today. He came from Nazareth, and we know from Nathaniel's confession, uh, he asked the question, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Incidentally, in Matthew's record of the baptism of Jesus, it just says that 
Jesus came out of Galilee to be baptized. Whereas Mark emphasizes it with more uh, specificity. He says he came out of Nazareth of Galilee. Despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now why is he being baptized? It's all just like his incarnation that he might identify with humanity and the sinful fall and the poverty of humanity. Of course, our Lord did not con come confessing his own sins. He had no sins of his own. But this is the point. He came to make himself one with those who were confessing their sin. In other words, he was allying himself with the race he had come to redeem. And the preliminary step to becoming the substitute for sinners was to be baptized in this baptism of repentance. What the Lord Jesus Christ is doing as the servant of Jehovah is he is identifying with sinners. He is symbolizing how he will take the sinner's place in physical death. And so just as John the Baptist in his preaching and in his baptism was preparing the way of the Lord by baptizing the Lord Jesus Christ, he is actually preparing the way of the Lord's substitution. The explanation is clear from Luke 12, from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, where he says himself in verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am straightened until it be accomplished. And he had been baptized already by the baptism of John. But the baptism he is speaking of is the baptism of Calvary. Where he would be baptized, immersed is the literal word, drenched in the judgmental wrath of God as the substitute for sinners. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Remember, it wasn't long after this baptism of Jesus that John the Baptist said, recorded in John's Gospel 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. The baptism of Jesus, first of all, is explained as the servant of Jehovah's identification with sinners. Now, there is great comfort in that thought to all of us, or at least there ought to be. Because this means, though sinless, though perfect, though holy, the Lord Jesus Christ is able to sympathize with our struggles, with sin and with temptation. Because though he never sinned, he has actually entered into the shame of sin. That is profound. And it is very comforting for us as sinners. But there is also a challenge in this thought. We need to ask the question of ourselves, how do we behave towards those who are struggling in sin around us? We often are at great pains to disassociate ourselves from sinners and from the type of sins that they sin in. This causes us to consider what was it for Christ to identify with sinners? It was a greater cost than it will ever cost us to identify with them. 
But his great cost to himself meant great gain to us. His utter selflessness in being willing to lose all reputation to be identified with sinful men. There's two lessons I want to give you out of this. First of all, there's a lesson for us in our evangelism. What does it cost us to reach the lost? I've often said, I think it's correct, if you want to know how much evangelism is done by a church, analyze their finances as to how much is spent on it. But you know, there's more than money involved in the cost to reach the lost. There often is inconvenience. There can even be a loss of reputation. Whatever the cost is to reputation or self-serving purpose, Jesus is giving us an example that whatever the cost is, however high it is, or broad or deep, we ought to identify with sinners. If he could do it, ought we not to do it? I often think of Ezekiel where he sits by the river Kibar with the exiled people of Israel in Babylon. And there they are dejected away from their holy land. And he just says in chapter 3 and verse 15 of his prophecy, I sat where they sat. Alexander White, speaking of General Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, says this of him. The general sits down in the same form, himself beside the off-scarring of the city. Thus it is that he gets his penitent form so well filled and his Salvation Army so well recruited. It was something not very unlike that when he who knew no sin came to the Jordan waters along with the Roman soldiers and the Jewish publicans who were there confessing and forsaking their sins. What a lesson in evangelism. But there's also a lesson in appreciation. That is appreciation of other men's ministries. This is the Lord of heaven, the creator of the earth, the son of God. And he comes to hear the preaching of John the Baptist and undergo his baptism. One old commentator called William Burkett put it like this. Thence learn that the greatest persons should neither think themselves too great nor too good to come unto the ministers of God to hear the word from their mouth. For Christ, the Son of God, was content to be baptized of John, a mean person in comparison of himself. How dare then the greatest upon earth despise the ministry of man being appointed of God? Christ appreciated the ministry of John the Baptist. Do we appreciate other men and women's ministries, even if they don't always agree with us? Well, the servant's identification with sinners is... I believe what Mark would first teach us. Then secondly, we see, I believe, outlined here, the servant's consecration as saviour. And what I'm talking about is there is a decision made here by the Lord Jesus, a commitment, a dedication of himself to God. For 33 years, or 30 years, I should say, he had stayed in Nazareth. Faithfully doing his day's work, discharging his duties in the workplace and probably at home after the decease, we, we think of Joseph. And he must have longed for a sign 
to, to, to lead him out into the Father's will for his life's purpose, his Father's business. And as we see from the Gospels, the emergence of John the Baptist was that sign. And the moment he knew John was there, he launches himself out upon his life's task. And his baptism by John the Baptist signifies his entire consecration of himself to be the world's sin bearer. In other words, by being baptized, he is yielding himself up without any reserve to do his father's will, even if it involved the cross. And we know that this gospel is an apology, an explanation of Christ's cross. Now, the issue faces us. The applicative challenge is, do we as the servants of the Lord, the servants of Christ, surrender ourselves to God, whatever the consequences may be? This is what the Lord was doing, consecrating himself to be a savior, to fulfill all righteousness, as he says in Matthew. It is the spirit that we find in Esther when she says, if I perish, I perish. I'm going in to save God's people. And this man could chop my head off with a drop of a word or even a gesture. But if I perish, I perish. Like Luther, standing before that great court in Worms, indicted by the church of Rome. He explains the reason why he believes in this doctrine of grace, of justification by faith. And after outlining it on the fallacies of Rome, he says, here I stand, I can do no other. That is the spirit of the Lord we see in his baptism. Prophetically, it's outlined for us in Psalm 40, where he is shown as saying to the Father, Lo, I come, and the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord. Thou knowest. He is consecrating himself as saviour. Though he is truly God, he was a man. Though he was a son, he became a servant. And now as he is about to enter into his life's ministry, he consecrates himself to do the will of the Father, whatever that may be. And I think that's a tremendous commentary on a, a commonly misunderstood verse in Hebrews 5, verse 8, which says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. My friend, in every life, there come moments of decision. And they have to be accepted or rejected. Do you know what God's will for your life is? Has it been made clear? And I know it's a very profound subject, the will of God. But perhaps there's someone here this morning and you know what God's will is. Well, have you submitted to the will of God and consecrated yourself to be the servant of the Lord? Verse 10 uses that phrase straightway or immediately which is right throughout the whole of Mark's gospel and it's speaking specifically of how Jesus came out of the water and what Mark is describing is the promptness in his service after he consecrated himself to serve the Lord as saviour to the world immediately after that consecration he is engaged in the act of serving 
How long is it since you've been saved? Or how long is it since you consecrated your life to the Lord? How is your service now? This baptism of Jesus was the servant's consecration as Savior. But thirdly, see, it is also the servant's recognition by the Father. So there is identification with sinners. There is consecration as Savior. But thirdly, there is recognition by the Father. The heavens open, and he says to the Son, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the, the Spirit descends as a dove. What this is, is approval from God. It is God's ratification. In other words, God is owning him. W. Kelly, the brethren writer, says, Could heaven behold unmoved such grace? Impossible. What meaning had the act of baptism in the mind of God? Who could understand what the tearing of the heavens meant to Jesus as the Son of God? Who could understand what those approving words, this is my beloved Son, or you are my beloved Son, what, what that meant to the Son of God, what it meant even to, to the people of Israel, who it says at least John the Baptist heard it in the, the record of the other Gospels, because God had not spoken in such a manner since the law of God was given at Sinai's Mount. What did it mean? Of course, these words are a combination of Psalm 2 and verse 7 and Isaiah 42 and verse 1. This is my beloved son. But notice, Mark records, not as Matthew. Matthew says, God said, this is my beloved son. Whereas Mark records, you are my beloved son. Mark presents the story as a personal experience which Jesus had. Not in any sense of demonstration to the crowd. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And, and what that I think is signifying is that at the baptism, Jesus submitted himself to God. And at that moment, he was approved by God. And this was a personal approvement. Of the silent years of Jesus' life for 30 years in obscurity. But it is also an approval of the work that he's about to embark in. The work of the cross. And the significance of the father's ratification of the son here is. That he is saying I love you. In spite of the humiliation that you've, you've gone down into. I love you no less because of it. And equally so. He honors him all the more because he was willing, he was rich, to become poor that he might make poor sinners rich through his humiliation and through his death. The father ratifies his identification with sinners and his consecration as Savior going to the cross. What a lesson. What is it, you say? It's what we find in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 30. God says, them that honor me. I will honor. The son was as the servant doing the will that pleased the father. And Mark's understanding, I believe, of the meaning of Jesus' baptism is a willing acceptance of the task that the father had given to him. What has God given you to do? Tell you one thing, he's, he's commanded you to be baptized. Are you? He's commanded you to remember the Lord around his table, did you? And there are many other commands and principles and precepts in God's word. 
and we please God when we obey him. But the challenge is we see from the rest of the gospel of Mark that Jesus' followers were unwilling to accept this path for Jesus. Do you not go into the cross? What are you talking about suffering and dying? And not only were they unwilling to accept that as his path, but they were unwilling to accept it as their own path, that they would have to suffer, that they perhaps would have to die because of Jesus. Yet as Paul tells us, this is something that all of us must grapple with as believers. Romans 6 and verse 3, we are all baptized into the death of Christ. And some martyrs were literally baptized by their own blood. In the death of Christ. What Mark is setting forth for us. Showing the Lord Jesus. In his recognition of the father. For doing his will. Is that there is no other path in Christianity. Except death to self. And remember that this book was probably given to believers. Who were suffering under Roman persecution. Many of them to the point of death. And what Mark is communicating is that just as our forerunner, Jesus, deliberately took on God's will and suffered for it and was honored in it, if we suffer, we will reign with him. But if we deny him, he will deny us. But fourthly and finally, not only in the baptism of Jesus do we see the servant of Jehovah's identification with sinners, his consecration as Savior, his recognition by the Father, but we see his preparation by the Spirit. In other words, his equipment for the work as Messiah and Savior of the world. And we see that the, the whole Trinity is involved here. Of course, at the beginning of creation, the whole Trinity was involved God said, let us make man in our image. And now as we come to the new creation, the whole Trinity again at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is involved, saying as it were, let us save man. One commentator put it like this. Not only the son loves his followers enough to suffer the pangs of hell in their stead, but also the spirit fully cooperates by strengthening him for the very task. And the Father, instead of frowning upon the one who undertakes it, is so very pleased with him that he must needs rend the son to the very heavens that his voice of the delightful approval of God may be heard on earth. All three are equally interested in our salvation, and these three are one. Of course, it's a wonderful demonstration of the doctrine of the Trinity. The Spirit coming in the form of a dove, the Father's voice speaking on Jesus in the Jordan being baptized. But see the significance of it. Verse 10 says that this dove, the Spirit in the form of a dove, lit upon him. Now, that word in Greek for upon is ice, which literally should be translated into. It is not the word for upon in Greek, which is epi, but the word for into. So the Spirit came 
into Jesus there, in some sense, at his baptism. And not as the Gnostics believed that this was just the man Jesus, and when the Christ spirit came upon him, he became the Christ, and that spirit left him before the cross. That is heresy of the damnablest kind. But what is being taught here is that this spirit, the spirit of God descending upon the Lord Jesus and actually going into him was the act of the Holy Spirit giving to Jesus the dynamic equipment which would enable him as Messiah to discharge his duties. Now please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I know he's the son of God. But we underestimate his condescension and humiliation when we fail to realize that he did not come to earth as God walking among men, but he came to earth as a man walking among men to be the Savior on behalf of God as God's Son. We know from his own words in Luke 4 that he was coming with the Spirit of God upon him because he hath anointed me, Jesus said, to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he's coming as the servant of Jehovah, as a man among men to save men, to satisfy God on God's behalf. And he did it as a man. Now you might ask the question, why did he need the Spirit of God? Let me say there was never a time in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was not filled completely with the Holy Spirit. Though he was God's son, to be the servant of Jehovah filled with the Spirit already, this was something more. This was something to enable him to do this great eternal work. And we read from the book of Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14 that all the servant's earthly ministry was, I quote, through the eternal Spirit. Now here's the big issue. If he needed the Spirit of God to fulfill his ministry, how much more do we need him? How much more do we know? Why is he symbolized as a dove? That's another common question. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, one-time president of Magdalen College, Oxford, says, All apparitions that God at any time made of himself were not so much made to show to men what God is in himself as to show us how he is affected towards us and to declare those effects that he will work in us. And if there is a creature that symbolizes how the Holy Spirit is to affect us and work in us, surely it is a dove. Goodwin goes on to say, For a dove, you know, is the most meek and the most innocent of all birds, without gall, without talents, having no fierceness in it, expressing nothing but love and friendship to its mate in all its carriages and mourning over its mate in all its distresses. And accordingly, a dove was a most fit emblem of the Spirit that was poured out upon our Savior when he was just about to enter on the work of our salvation. For as sweetly as doves do converse with doves, so may every sinner in Christ converse together. But I think it suggests more than that. More than just his harmlessness and meekness. It was, I believe, in itself a suggestion of the sacrifice that he was going to undertake on the lowest terms. Now, not in its intrinsic value. It is beyond measure the value of the sacrifice of Christ. But as to the capacity of the worshipper. What am I talking about? 
Well, the poorest Israelite who couldn't afford a lamb could come with their offering for sin with a dove. And they were permitted to bring a dove as a sacrifice for their sinfulness. Here is the lowly servant of God. And it is a dove that lights upon him. Isaiah, the Old Testament evangelist, said to God, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might flow at thy presence. What is the baptism of Jesus? The heavens were open to show that the heaven that once was closed because of our sins, shut against us personally, is now opened by Christ, undertaking his role as the servant of Jehovah. Coming from obscurity and isolation for 30 years in Nazareth of Galilee. Coming and in his baptism identifying with sinners, consecrating as the Savior, having recognition from the Father and preparation by the Spirit, we see him entering his work. Our Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ identified with us. We thank you that he consecrated himself in your will to be our Savior and was recognized in that consecration by thee and by the Spirit's endowment for the task. Lord, we thank you, those of us who are saved, that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And yet, Lord, there may be others here this morning, and they have never seen the wonder that Christ was made sin for us. May they see it today, Lord. But for all of us, you have given to us Christ as our example. And may we, in turn, identify with those lost in sin, May we consecrate ourselves to see them one. May we know the recognition of God in that task as you honor us and endue us with an outpouring of your spirit personally and corporately in this place. To the glory of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.